Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Hour 2 of the Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde broadcast and podcast. I'm glad you could join me today. I'm going to try to make this worth your while. I've got a couple of uh, thought-provoking topics to throw your direction. And if uh, you would like, feel free to bat them right back at me. I uh, have been watching with some interest the fires going on in Australia. And and I'll tell you, some of the imagery is uh, hellish, to put it mildly. It's It's astonishing. The amount of burning that's going on. But what's even more amazing is the, the, the blame mongering and the opportunism that I see rearing its its head in the form of uh, environmental activists uh, coming forward saying, well, now, listen, you stupid blankety blanket. I mean, they're using full on profanity for people who won't accept that these fires are the reason. The reason for these fires is climate change. Which is is kind of a shorthand for would you people just shut up? And get on board with the uh, get on board the climate change bandwagon. Crazy stuff. Now, my understanding is Australian authorities have arrested around 200 people or more for actually starting fires, you know, for for committing acts of arson. And, and you know, the conditions under which these fires have, have grown so large and so so out of control totally could be related to climate change. But I think in the eyes of, of most climate change activists, I would probably be what uh, would be called a, a denier. I think of myself as a skeptic. But as I've explained before, the reason I'm a skeptic is because no matter how it is spun, no matter, no matter how they plead or beg or, or demand you know, that, uh, that we, we do something, how dare you? It always comes down to we need to give tons of money my money and your money to politicians. And we need to give them more power to make decisions over every aspect of our lives. Only then can we know that the climate change crisis will have been averted. The fanaticism is, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, even the most radical Islamists roll their eyes when they look at the climate change fanaticism. Now, look, I think that there is climate change going on, and I think it has uh, something to do with natural cycles that take place, solar minimums and the like. My friend Ralph DeLugas, the host of Stranger Than Fiction here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, um, has some really good and I think well-reasoned thoughts on this. I'm not saying that, therefore, we should all be out there burning tires and dumping our motor oil down the gutters. But I don't trust the people who are clearly power-seeking, or at least trying to enable politicians to take greater control of our lives and our pocketbooks. And I don't believe for a moment that if I just would cough up a little more money, that somehow we could change the entire global climate. I think that's a load of crap. There's another aspect of this uh, fanaticism that really concerns me. And, and this was uh, pointed out. Roger Root actually uh, pointed this out to me. Uh, journalists are saying we want censorship when it comes to climate change. It's an official editorial in a Canadian newspaper in Winnipeg. Time to silence voices of denial. Hang on a second. Let that sink in for just a moment. Time to silence voices of denial. Really? Not counter, not engage, but silence. Oh, my word. The article 
talks about how uh well, let's let's go back for a minute here. This is uh, I'm trying to see who who was the analysis here. I think it's uh, Canadian journalist Donna Lafram Bois, and uh, her her posts uh, address the the call for censorship on the part of Canadian journalists. She says, if anyone should be passionately devoted to free speech, surely it's journalists. Five years ago, yesterday, I'm trying to see when this was published. This was published a couple of days ago. Uh, Nine writers, editors, and cartoonists associated with the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo were slaughtered in Paris. Islamic fundamentalists considered them guilty of blasphemy. So what did the entire editorial board of Canada's Winnipeg Free Press newspaper do the day before that anniversary? Remember, these people were killed because they had offended certain radicalized Islamists. Because they said that they had had, uh, had said things that they shouldn't say, and they went in and they, they shot them to death. So the Canada Winnipeg, Winnipeg Free Press paper called for censorship. And it didn't just quietly, you know, maybe we should censor. The, it called for intolerance. It loudly called for it. It published a lengthy editorial titled, Time to Silence, Voices of Denial. And it's Donna... Um, La Framboise, I, I don't know if I'm saying her name right. I'm sure there's a French, French pronunciation, which I am not ho, 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 doing right. But she says, this is, this is crazy. This isn't the opinion of a single writer we're informed. This is an official consensus view from the Winnipeg Free Press. Now, the editorial's arguments are the usual weak broth. We're told climate change is undoubtedly the most urgent problem of our time. News alert, Freeman Dyson, one of the world's most brilliant physicists, disagrees. Here's what he told a Salon interviewer more than a decade ago. Quote, the idea that global warming is the most important problem facing the world is total nonsense, and it's doing a lot of harm. It distracts people's attention from much more serious problems. End quote. But the editorial says many people still deny it exists. So let's quote Dyson again. Quote, I'm not saying there's no climate change. Of course there's climate change. Climate change is part of the normal order of things, and we know it was happening before humans came. There is also human-induced climate change. That's certainly happening, too. But I don't think there's reason for worrying about it. End quote. Well, the editorial tells us scientists have reached a near-universal consensus on human-made climate change. So here's Dyson one more time. Quote, In the history of science, it has ha- often happened that the majority was wrong and refused to listen to a minority that later turned out to be right. End quote. Now, this editorial twice employs the term climate change deniers. And the author says that's nasty, high test character assassination. Anyone who differs from the majority view, so the argument goes, is depraved, morally toxic, equivalent to Holocaust deniers. She says humanity has never been able to accurately foresee the future. Endless lists of predictions, particularly pessimistic ones, have fallen flat. And she gives three solid examples linked there. But dare to point this out in the climate context and that journalists will call you vile names. How strange, she says, at a time that we're encouraged not just to be tolerant, but supportive of religious, ethnic, racial and sexual minorities. Winnipeg free press journalists are singling out an intellectual minority climate skeptics to be silenced and spat upon. She says, as I observed a year ago, governments, media outlets, business leaders, churches, and schools have spent decades insisting there's a climate emergency. 
Independent thinkers who challenge this doctrine are swimming against the tide. They're surrounded on all sides by a worldview to which they conscientiously object. They are a despised minority whom mainstream society thinks it's okay to demonize. Well, according to this editorial, however, climate skeptics have been controlling the conversation. From the editorial, quote, climate change deniers, including those directly invested in the fossil fuel industry, should no longer dictate the terms, end quote. Because, sarcasm alert, the tens of thousands who've recently lost jobs in Canada's oil industry are actually running the show. The companies reacting to hostile government policies by pulling billions of investment dollars out of Alberta are, in reality, in charge. Just as other minorities have historically been accused of covert antisocial influence, this editorial implies climate skeptics are responsible for heat waves, droughts, floods, and Australian wildfires. The refusal of skeptics to sit down and shut up is, we're told, intolerable. Again, from the editorial, quote, In 2020, there's no longer room for debate about the existence of climate change. We need our leaders to make climate change a priority issue. But that can't happen until they and we stop wasting precious, precious time with circular debates and denials while the world burns down around us. End quote. Now, she says newspapers are supposed to be about a lot of things, holding governments accountable, ensuring that the powerful don't steamroller over the weak, promoting debate about society's most pressing problems and debate about the various ways those problems should be tackled. The Winnipeg Free Press, however, says enough is enough. Intellectual fundamentalism has arrived. There's only one truth. And she says the survivors of the Charlie Hebdo massacre know precisely where such fundamentalism leads. Snap! I don't know what your stance is. I don't know if, you know, if you are a hardcore, you know, climate change believer or if, like me, you're a skeptic or maybe you're an outright denier. Maybe you do go burn tires on Earth Day just to, you know, show they ain't going to put a saddle on me. But I'm a firm believer that truth will come out and the the cure for speech that is unpleasant or even incorrect is more free speech. Discussion is where we can sort these kind of things out. Anybody who advocates for censorship is trying to limit what you are allowed to consider. That is an intolerable thing and you should not put up with it. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. All right, it felt good to get that off my chest about uh, the the calls for censorship as it applies to climate change skeptics. I understand. Some points of view just don't want to... There People just don't want to hear certain points of view. But when people start talking out-and-out censorship, I mean, you're, you're, you're venturing in the direction of book burning. And I know that may sound dramatic and, well, okay, now you're taking it to an extreme. Where else logically would it lead, though? Well, we just want to make sure that these dangerous points of view aren't, uh, aren't out there. Why? Do you not have enough confidence in your own point of view or in, in, in your own ability to, uh, to give voice to the truth? 
Do you think you couldn't persuade people? Does it have to be by force? I suspect that's probably the dynamic behind this desire to to fit people for a ball gag rather than let them uh, hold their own opinions. As long as their behavior is peaceful, who cares what they think? Yeah, even I'm saying even people who have openly hateful ideologies, as long as their behavior is peaceful, that's their problem. Let them let them think what they will. Let them hold in their hearts what they will. If their behavior is peaceful, it's none of your business or my business. But unfortunately, there's this attitude out there that well, we've got to do something. We've got to make sure that everybody thinks what they're supposed to think and does what they're supposed to do, to do rather. And, and the, the, the control freak mentality is eagerly embraced by people in government because why? It gives them job security. It gives them a constituency. More importantly, it uh, gives them and their constituency someone on which they can focus their, uh, their frustrations an enemy, if you will. Let's talk for a moment about uh, about misinformation, particularly in the media. There's an article by James D. Agresti. This is on intellectualtakeout.org, titled Voters Widely Accept Misinformation Spread by the Media. And he says, an NBC News reporter and political director Chuck Todd recently railed against, quote, misinformation, and singled out President Trump and the right for having an incentive structure to spread it. Todd, who, according to NBC, is responsible for all aspects of the network's political coverage, also stated that Republicans criticize the media for sport, and the loudest chanters of fake news are the ones who, under a lie detector, would probably take our word over any word they've heard from the other side on whether something was poisonous or not. Now, James Agresti says, speaking directly to those unsupported claims, a scientific survey commissioned by Just Facts shows that many people are indeed misinformed. But contrary to Chuck Todd, this is a bipartisan affair. In fact, the survey found that the most commonly believed misinformation accords with left-leaning narratives spread by the press. And Democratic voters are more likely to accept these falsehoods than Trump voters. Furthermore, sizable portions of Trump voters have swallowed some of these media-promoted liberal fictions, as well as some conservative ones. The findings are from a nationally representative annual survey commissioned by Just Facts, a nonprofit research and educational institute. The survey was conducted by Triton Polling and Research, an academic research firm that used sound methodologies to assess U.S. residents who regularly vote. Now, while most polls measure public opinion, This one was unique in that it measured voters' knowledge of major issues facing the nation. So things like education, taxes, health care, national debt, pollution, government spending, social security, global warming, energy, and hunger. Every year, the poll includes a new question about a prevalent controversial issue. This year, it's about poverty. For each question, voters were offered a selection of two or more answers, one of which was true. And voters also had the opportunity to say that they were unsure. On average, voters gave the correct answer 39% of the time, gave an incorrect answer 54% of the time, and said they were unsure only 6% of the time. A majority of voters gave the correct answer to only 5 of the 24 questions. The highest levels of misinformation were found on questions relating to child hunger, Tax burdens, poverty, landfills, health insurance, co-payments, and two elements of Social Security finances. For these seven questions, 75% or more of voters provided an incorrect answer. 
Among eight of the ten questions in which the electorate was most deluded, the wrong answers they gave accorded with progressive storylines propagated by the media. Moreover, these answers were often far removed from reality, not just slightly mistaken. For example, 79% of voters think that the middle class pays a greater portion of their income in federal taxes than the top 1%. Yet the Congressional, the Congressional Budget Office, the U.S. Treasury, and Tax Policy Center have all documented that households in the top 1% pay an average federal tax rate that's about 2.5 times higher than that of the middle class. More specifically, the latest Congressional Budget Office data on federal taxes shows that on average in 2016, middle-income households pay $10,100 in taxes on income of $75,900, or a tax rate of 13%. The top 1% of households paid $595,900 in taxes on income of $1.7 million, or a tax rate of 33%. Nevertheless, news outlets or media outlets commonly report the opposite based on deceptive studies that exclude large portions of people's taxes and or incomes. A remarkable 93% of Democratic voters have accepted this canard, as well as 65% of Trump voters. Now, the survey also recorded voters' ages, genders, and who they plan to vote for in the upcoming presidential election. Donald Trump, the eventual Democratic nominee, or a third-party candidate. This allows the survey to pinpoint segments of society that are most and least informed about specific issues. I think you'll find these numbers interesting. The results show deep partisan and demographic divides, with different groups being more or less knowledgeable depending on the questions. In total, the rates at which voters gave correct answers varied from a high of 46% for Trump voters to a low of 32% for Democrat voters with others falling in between as follows, 46% for Trump voters, 43% for males, 41% for 35 to 64-year-olds, 38% for 65-plus-year-olds, 37% for 18 to 34-year-olds, 36% for females, 32% for Democratic voters. The sample sizes of unsure and third-party voters were too small to produce meaningful data. And there's a nice link here that will give you the questions, the answers, the full survey results, and the methodologies. You can check that out for yourself. Now, this may sound like I'm just trying to point out, well, see, it's the left-wingers that are all misinformed, and, you know, they're, they're the ones who are getting it wrong. But as, as the article pointed out, it's a bipartisan thing. It can happen to anybody. So what do you do about it? Here's my recommendation for what it's worth. This is one of the reasons why you and I have to be willing to invest a little bit of time and a lot of effort in ourselves to make ourselves as propaganda proof as we can. And that doesn't mean that you need to go get, uh, you know, a law degree or study for the LSAT, go to go to school, become a lawyer. No, um, that will they will train you how to how to think carefully and how to use logic. But there's something even more simple that you and I could do every day right from the comfort of your own couch or even at your kitchen table. You ready for this? Are you sitting down? Read old books. I know, it sounds too, too good to be true, right? Pfft, what kind of a miracle cure are you talking about here? When I say read old books, I mean dig into books that are written above your head. It could be, you know, picking up some of the Platonic dialogues, or it could be, um, you know, reading 
you know, a classic of poetry. Read Homer's Odyssey. I don't know. Read something that causes you to have to work at understanding it. And it's not that, you know, Aristotle is going to tell you all the answers of this is what you need to know about uh, what should be done in terms of U.S. foreign policy in 2020. But by challenging your brain, you're building neural pathways that train you to think and order your thinking in ways that uh, more so than just having the right answer on the tip of your tongue, you know the right questions to ask to get to the answers that you need. You do that for just a few minutes a day, I promise you'll see a difference in how you think. You are listening to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, got a lot of great stuff still to share. We're, we're down to the last uh, last half hour of the show. And a couple of the things that I wanted to, to share with you. Um, here's, here's one from Carrie uh, McDonald, who is just one of my favorite sources for, for thoughtful analysis and thoughtful uh, approaches to, to teaching, to learning. Now, her article is entitled, We, in quotation marks, should not regulate homeschooling. Now, listen to what she has to say here. She says, the desire to control other people's ideas and behavior, particularly when they challenge widely held beliefs and customs, is one of human nature's most nefarious tendencies. And she reminds us, Socrates was sentenced to death for stepping out of line. Galileo almost was. But such extreme examples are outnumbered by the many more common pernicious acts of trying to control people by limiting their individual freedom and autonomy. Now, sometimes these acts target individuals who dare to be different, but often they target entire groups who simply live differently. On both the political left and right, efforts to control others emerge in different flavors of limiting freedom, often with safety as the rationale. So whether it's calls for Muslim registries or homeschool registries, fear of freedom is the common denominator. A recent example of this was an NPR story that aired last week with the headline, How Should We Regulate Homeschooling? And I love her answer. The short answer is, we shouldn't. Now, the episode recycled common claims in favor of increased government control of homeschooling, citing rare instances in which a child could be abused or neglected through homeschooling because of a lack of government oversight. Now, of course, this concern ignores the rampant abuse children experience by school teachers and staff people in government schools across the country. Just last month, for example, two public school teachers in California pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting a student. A public school teacher in New Mexico was convicted of sexually assaulting a second grader after already being convicted of sexually assaulting two fourth graders. Two public school employees in Virginia were charged with abusing six nonverbal special needs students, and the San Diego Unified School District in California is being sued because one of its teachers pleaded guilty to repeated sexual abuse and intimidation of a student. Now, Carrie McDonald says child abuse is horrific, regardless of where it takes place. But the idea that government officials who can't prevent widespread abuse from occurring in public schools should regulate homeschooling is misguided. 
She says many parents choose to homeschool because they believe that learning outside of schooling provides a safer, more nurturing, and more academically rigorous educational environment for their children. The top motivator of homeschooling families, according to the most recent data from the U.S. Department of Education, is, quote, concern about the environment of other schools, end quote. Carrie McDonald says being regulated by the flawed government institution you are fleeing is statism at its worst. Now, the good news is homeschooling is growing. She says Brian Ray, Ph.D., director of the National Home Education Research Institute, offered strong counterpoints in the otherwise lopsided NPR interview, reminding listeners that homeschooling is a form of private education that should be exempt from government control and offering favorable data on the well-being, achievement and outcomes of homeschooled students. Homeschooling continues to be a popular option for an increasingly diverse group of families as its numbers swell to nearly two million U.S. children. The homeschooling population is growing demographically, geographically, socioeconomically, and ideologically heterogeneous, heterogeneous, heterogeneous. I'm sorry, I'm really struggling with that word. It's because I wasn't homeschooled, obviously. Homeschooling families often reject the standardized one-size-fits-all curriculum frameworks and the pedagogy of public schools and instead customize an educational approach that works best for their child and family. She says, with its expansion from the margins to the mainstream over the past several decades and the abundance of homeschool resources and tools now available, modern homeschooling encompasses an array of different educational philosophies and practices, from school-at-home methods to unschooling to hybrid homeschooling. The diversity of philosophy and practice is a feature to be celebrated. It's not a failing to be regulated. And she says, the collective we should not exert control over individual freedom or try to dominate difference. We should just leave everyone alone. Amen, sister. That is <laughs> that is right on the money. I mean, I remember 25 years ago meeting a family who had moved, I think they had moved to southern Idaho from, I think it was North Carolina, might have been South Carolina, but the whole reason that they moved to southern Idaho Took a pretty good cut in pay, but they they went there specifically because the homeschooling environment in the state where they were living, one of the Carolinas, was very, very unfavorable. And I'm sure if you if you have ever tried homeschooling or even if you've been around homeschoolers, you understand the first question people ask when you tell them, yeah, we're going to be homeschooling our kids. They want to know, well, uh, what are you going to be doing to socialize your kids? You don't want them growing up a bunch of social retards, do you? And, and that seems to be the, the default objection people throw out. Well, I'm concerned. Are they going to learn the things that they really need to learn? Well, I've been around a lot of homeschooling families. I've actually, we've done homeschooling ourselves. We, my wife and I have covered pretty much every aspect of schooling that we possibly could. We've homeschooled. We have done charter schools. We've done private schools. We have done public school. And right now my wife is a public school teacher. It's different for every family. It's different for every kid. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. Some kids thrive in a more structured environment. And what I'm saying is some kids actually do better in the public school setting, where it's a little more institutional, where the, the rules and the structure are a little more rigorous. Other kids absolutely thrive in unschooling, where it's self-directed learning 
where they choose what they want to learn. And by the way, for those who think, well, it just sounds to me like an excuse to let your kid play all day or maybe to go out and put them to work there on the family farm or something. I don't know why that seems to be the one of the, the default objections. Well, these kids are going to be exploited if you don't have them in a school. Yeah, because nobody would ever exploit them where they have a captive audience, would they? Nobody would try to teach them perversion as uh, normalcy. Nobody would try to teach them that, uh, that government is the answer to every problem that we face. Nobody would try to teach them that there are 63 genders or however many there are and insist that the kids go through sensitivity training each day as part of their, uh, you know, their education. I guess my point is just simply this. You will find good and bad in any schooling environment. But the question I like to come back to is whose kids are they in the first place? Who has the primary responsibility? And if you try to give me this, well, it takes a village to raise these children, Brian. I'm going to just throw it right back at you and say, are they your kids? I'd say that responsibility goes to their parents first. Well, some parents don't. Yet some parents don't take their parenting seriously. You're right. But most do. So let's stop playing to the exception and start playing to the rule. Those parents have, I'm going to use a word that will make some people freak out, sovereignty. They are the repository of authority when it comes to their child. Yes, even above the state and its experts. And they should be free to teach their children and to, to exercise their uh, parental decision-making in the way that is, is best calculated to, to benefit their child and their family's, their family's happiness. I can't understand the folks who think that, no, 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 the state's got to be a part of this. It's got to be right in the middle of it. Otherwise, you know, everything's just out of control. No, it's not. I've seen kids from homeschool families who just excel. Not, not necessarily just in academics. I mean, they do fine in academics, but the, the other places where I see them excel is being willing to step outside of the little artificial bubble of, look, everybody has to be segregated by age, and, you know, we, we have to make sure that uh, the cool kids are over here and the not-so-cool kids over here. This is one of the highest compliments that anybody could ever pay me back when, when we were homeschooling our kids. And I had multiple people tell me, I am so impressed that your kids can sit down and carry on a conversation with an adult. And they could. They could speak to people well outside of their age group. And they were genuinely curious and they wanted to learn. And they, they, you know, they weren't afraid to speak. They hadn't yet been trained. You know, you, uh, you only you raise your hand and you ask permission to do anything, anytime, anywhere. And what's sad is you can see a lot of adults that carry that into their adult lives. I guess uh, bottom line is this. The best choices are going to come when people have the freedom to make those choices. Let them choose. Let them own the consequences. But don't try to force it from the top down with some government-imposed solution. That just leads to more heartache. We'll be back right after these messages.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. We are in the home stretch on this, uh, what is today, Thursday. Don't want to complain, but it sure seems like the year's going fast. We're already more than a week into 2020. So I'm facing a little bit of a dilemma, and I don't know if you are facing this too, but I, look, I like Netflix. And in fact, uh, even when family gets together, we sometimes have a great time just kicking back and watching a favorite TV series or something like this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm not going to complain about it. I just, you know, I, I just think that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of variety there. And, and the problem I'm having, though, is Netflix is becoming kind of a, they are on the, uh, they are on the cutting edge of the culture war. And something that I have started to notice that is causing me concern and actually causing me to question whether I even want to have a Netflix subscription any longer is uh, a very overt form of anti-Christian blasphemy. And, you know, look, Hollywood always has had kind of a, uh, you know, it's had an axe to grind with, with anything religious or moral. I can only assume that's because there's a lot that goes on in Hollywood that isn't moral and they don't want anybody reminding them of that. But the anti-Christian blasphemy is getting pretty over the top. And it's, you know, I mean, you probably have heard of uh, the, uh, oh, what was the, the show that they, they just uh, put out? It's, it's a comedy group that, uh, that uh, put out a, a, a program about gay Jesus. And, you know, it, it's supposed to be edgy. It's supposed to be, ha ha, you know, look at us. We're, we're so avant-garde here. <sighs> But it's not just that you see you see blasphemy um, in in so many other shows. Shameless, you know, uh, loves to ridicule and and portray people who are religious as well. You know, they're all really closeted perverts and they're all crooks and whatnot. The only really righteous people are the ones who, uh, well, pretty much sleep with whomever they want and support whatever is you know uh, the the sexual liberation imperative of the moment. Very interesting dynamic. Well, Grayson Quay, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, had a really good essay here about how anti-Christian blasphemy isn't edgy or brave. And I don't want you to get the impression that we're running around here with a victim complex. Ah, it's so woe is us. It's just, do you want to let this kind of negativity into your home? Would you be willing to, would you be willing to accept a beautiful plateful of brownies? If you knew that uh, somewhere in the process of making those brownies, somebody dropped a cat turd in there and mixed it in. And, you know, mostly it's going to be brownies. It's probably 95% brownie, but, you know, 5% of that is actually cat manure. Kind of the same analogy. I, I just, I, whatever entertainment value Netflix brings into my home is, is being offset by the fact that there's something very unpalatable. This, and this is, I'm speaking just for myself. I'm not telling you, you have to feel this way, but it's a concern for me. Here's how Grayson Quay put it. He says, in late December, an obscure Brazilian far-right group firebombed the Rio de Janeiro office of the production company behind a comedic Christmas or uh, Netflix Christmas special that portrayed Jesus as gay. A security guard quickly extinguished the blaze and no one was hurt. Porta dos Fundus, the comedy group behind the film, immediately began casting themselves as brave defenders of free speech. In an official statement, the group announced that our country will survive this storm of hatred and love will prevail along with freedom of speech. While one member took to Twitter to proclaim they won't shut us up. Never. 
Now, he says, I'll admit, at first there was a small part of me that wanted to thank the would-be arsonists. The film entitled The First Temptation of Christ is blasphemy of the most juvenile sort, on a par with a child who farts at Christmas dinner just to watch Grandma clutch her pearls. Porta dos Fundos sets out with the sole intention of offending, and it worked. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. But he says, then I realized something. The film not only achieved its desired effect, it went beyond anything Portos dos Fundos could have expected. It is precisely because the Molotov cocktail attack was so unexpected that the first temptation of Christ was ever made in the first place. Blasphemy might have been a capital crime in bygone centuries, but today no one slanders Christ and expects to suffer for it. Quite the opposite, in fact. In the prophet's column, Portus Dos Fundus has a lucrative Netflix contract and 16 million YouTube subscribers. Their loss column consists of some minor smoke damage and the cost of a new fire extinguisher. Now, Grayson Quay says, I'm not the first to make this observation. At the 2016 Chicago Humanities Festival, feminist scholar Camille Paglia railed against the completely hollow type of transgressive gesture that defines contemporary art. She said, quote, once, if you made an avant-garde gesture, there was a price to be paid for it. Since the 80s, what is the price paid? You take something from Catholic iconog iconography, always Catholic, right? Never Jewish, never Muslim, and you do something scandalous with it. And you'll be written up in the New York Times. You'll get a grant from the National Endowment of the Arts. You'll be hired by the University of Chicago or Berkeley or UCLA. End quote. Grayson Quay says the blasphemy of the first temptation of Christ is not only safe and boring, it's hypocritical. There's a reason Porta dos Fundos made a gay Jesus movie instead of a gay Muhammad movie. Most Christians are fully on board with the values of free speech and freedom of religion, which are arguably themselves products of a Christian worldview. Even a banned T-shirt with a slogan, Jesus is a blank, blank, blank. The most blasphemous statement its designers could think of resulted in nothing more than a few brief arrests and perfunctory fines. Depictions of Mohammed, on the other hand, have led to death threats, riots, and terrorist attacks, including the 2015 massacre of 12 people at the office of, uh, offices of French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo. Many artists and organizations that portray themselves as heroes of free expression often cower when certain Muslims threaten to make them put some skin in the game. New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art, for example, temporarily removed paintings depicting Islam's prophet back in 2010. But it had no problem with offending Christians with its 2018 gala theme. Christianity is the perfect target for pseudo-provocateurs who get to seem edgy without suffering any of the consequences that often accompany truly countercultural art. For Porto dos Fundos and their ilk... Christianity is simultaneously so tyrannical that mocking it is an act of heroic bravery and so powerless that it can be mocked with impunity. And he has a good point here. It can't be both. Likewise, he says, it's impossible for Portos dos Fondos to be mainstream and subversive at the same time. As early as 1932, British journalist G.K. Chesterton foresaw the absurdity of this secular balancing act. Chesterton said, quote, when God is abolished, the abolition is abolished. There can never be any future for the literature of blasphemy, for if it fails, it fails. And if it succeeds, it becomes a literature of respectability. In short, all that sort of effect can only be an instantaneous effect, like smashing a valuable vase that cannot be smashed again. The heaven-defying gesture can only be impressive as a last gesture. 
Blasphemy is, by definition, the end of everything, including the blasphemer. The wife of Job saw the common sense of this when she said instinctively, curse God and die. The modern poet, by some thoughtless oversight, so often neglects to die. End quote. So Grayson Quay says Portostos Fundus has the right to free speech and the radical right-wingers who attacked their offices should be caught and punished. But any attempts by members of this comedy troupe to portray themselves as revolutionary martyrs speaking truth to power deserve nothing but scorn. Now, what I'm about to say may seem a little bit uh, out of character here, but this is one of the reasons why I was actually kind of pleased to see um, Ricky Gervais taking the Hollywood elite to task here uh, just a few days ago at the Golden Globes Award. I still think Golden Calves would have been a catchier name, but apparently that was already taken. He called them out to their faces. And I guess, you know, they may have understood. Look, we get him here. We get him as our host. He's going to be, you know, razzing us. But he called them out as as friends and supporters of Jeff uh, Jeffrey Epstein. They started to kind of boo, hey, you know, get a little grumbly. And he's like, oh, shut up. You know you're friends with him. What's the matter? Do you have to find your own plane to get here? <laughs> and, and he called him out on the idea of you guys have spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. He says, so don't make a political speech for us. Just get up here. Thank your agent. Thank your God. And then blank off. And it, the, the best part of this was the looks on the faces of of so many of those Hollywood uh, superstars who you could tell they're just, they're used to being adored. They're used to being revered and worshiped and, and assured of how wonderful they are in every way. And someone was telling them to their face, you're a bunch of phonies. I don't think escalation is the key. I do think that uh, you and I are being given an opportunity though, to, to show the kind of people that we are. And I suspect that uh, there's a decision approaching in my life here in the not-so-distant future that I'm going to have to choose whether the entertainment value of Netflix makes it worth keeping the uh, blasphemous content that comes along with it. I'm more inclined to cut the cord and find better things to do. What would you do? Hey, thanks for joining us today. 